Good morning. My name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to welcome you to our online service today, whether you're joining us live or, or streaming it later. We're glad you could join us. Today we're continuing our series in Ephesians, and we've talked about how this letter is going to help us, we trust, consider what it means to be the church and to consider what it means to be the church at this time of seeking for our identity, trying to figure out who we are in a new way, given the challenges we're facing during this pandemic. Um, one thing you can help us with in that regard is that there's lots of talk right now about reopening churches, and we have created a survey that if you're part of our church, uh, if you have time, we'd appreciate it if you could fill out the survey on reopening. Just we want to get your thoughts on uh, what your attitude, what your practice would be um, when the time comes for us to reopen, whether that's sooner or later. So please, you'll find that uh, in the comments. You'll find a link to the survey, and we'd appreciate it if you could fill that in. Thank you. Um, so Paul says in this letter that God's purposes will be carried out in the church through our life together in Christ. And he starts from the beginning to establish our identity in Christ. And the first chapter of this letter uh, lays a foundation for us. You can think of it as though Paul was, was laying down these huge granite slabs, creating something he's going to build on through the rest of the letter. He's making us strong using God's word. And we, we've seen how he calls us by various names. He calls us saints, God's holy people, faithful, blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen, holy and blameless, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, chosen, predestined according to God's plan, included in Christ, marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit, heirs of God's riches, we belong to him. In all these ways, he describes us. And over the past two Sundays, we've read and reflected on the second half of the first chapter of this letter, where Paul prays for us to come to know Jesus better and for us to understand, to grasp, to uh, have the power of Christ, the resurrection power of Jesus at work in our lives. And today we're going to see how God used that power to make everything new, to change our lives, to change the world, to bring us from death to life to lead us into the future he has for us. And that's what we're diving into today, Courtright. So I hope you're excited. Uh, this passage we're about to read is, is one of the most incredible passages in the New Testament, uh, I think. So let's pray before we do that ourselves. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you remind us today of who we are? Um, we are tempted in so many ways to redefine ourselves according uh, to things that you want us to turn away from, that, that compete in a way with who we are in Christ. And so I pray that you today would speak your word of love and your word of affirmation into us so that we know again who we are built up on this foundation that is in Christ, that we are together his church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So we're reading uh, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to grab that, or maybe you have it on a device, and to keep it open, because I'm going to be referring back to various verses uh, throughout the sermon. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, 
the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we have here in the beginning of Ephesians 2 is basically a summary of the whole Christian life. It's this amazing overview of every aspect of what Christ has done for us. You've got sin covered in the first three verses, then salvation in verses four to nine, and then right at the end, sanctification. So first of all, there's sin, the mess we've made of the world and the mess in our own individual lives and our hearts. And then you've got salvation. God steps into that mess and with Jesus Christ, he makes it right. He opens a way back to him. And then you've got sanctification, the good work we were created to do. The path that we can walk in freedom, not out of guilt or obligation. The path that leads us to being more like Jesus. So sin, salvation, sanctification. Each point starts with the same letter even. It's a preacher's dream, perhaps. But I want to be a little more unpredictable. And so I'm going to throw zombies into the mix. And because zombie doesn't start with the letter S, we thought about changing the whole structure, the three-point structure, because it would have four points. And you can see it there on the screen now. But no, no, we're not going that far. Besides, I want quickly to reassure you that zombies aren't a major point in this sermon. The reason I mention zombies, actually, is that I once led a Bible study on this passage uh, when I was at my former church in downtown Toronto, and a U of T student who had just become a a Christian, uh, who was always coming up with amazing and often hilarious comments on the Bible because it was new to him, he said that this passage sounded like Paul was comparing the Christian life to a zombie movie where people who don't know Jesus are like the walking dead and where people who do know Jesus are the only ones who are really alive, except they're not being chased by zombies, which as some of you know is a major feature of zombie movies. I thought he was joking, but he, he wasn't. He explained that he felt that way, partly because before he became a Christian, he, he felt like he had no meaning in his life. It was like going through the motions. It was a black and white life. Uh, But when he met Jesus and when his life was changed, when he came to faith, when the Holy Spirit filled him in a new way, and and he used the term born again, um, he said that his life, it was like all of a sudden there were colors everywhere. There was meaning. He'd never experienced life like that before. So even if this passage doesn't make you think of zombies right away, The first three verses are a rude awakening, I would say, after 
everything we've seen in chapter one, all that glowing stuff that built us up in who we are in Christ. Verse one starts off, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So you have to ask yourself, was Paul just playing with us? Was he saying all those nice things so that we let down our guard in a way and then boom, he would hit us with sin at the opportune moment? No, I don't think it's quite that simple. I think you can never really separate those things, who we are now in all those glowing terms which are true, from who we were. And so first of all, Paul gave us this picture of who we truly are in Jesus. And now he's going to remind us of who we were, of the alternative to that beautiful picture of of who we are uh, thanks to the salvation we have in Christ. When he says we were dead in our sins, he's saying that we were so helpless, it was like we were dead. We chose to follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is code for the devil. And so we gratified the cravings of our flesh. Now, for some of you, this may sound like a familiar script. Maybe you grew up in a church which talked a lot about the cravings of the flesh and how bad they were. Christians fixated on sin, unable to let anyone else have a good time, right? We've heard that before. And that's the perception, sadly, a lot of people have of the church. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. When he says flesh, he's not referring to our bodies. He's talking about our nature, something deeper. He's talking about our self-centeredness. And he says that we are incurably self-centered. Imagine it like this. Imagine if your phone came with a calculator app that could size up every situation in your life immediately and figure out how to get the most out of it for yourself. Now, I think that'd be a pretty popular app, wouldn't it? The app would consider all kinds of questions that we ask ourselves often. What's in it for me? How is this going to benefit me? Is this good for me? Is this person I'm with making me happy? Is this working for me? And based on those calculations, the app would advise you to take a certain action. So Paul is saying that human nature operates like that, that we have that kind of a calculator app in our hearts, deep within us. We're constantly calculating everything based on our own self-interest. And when you're a slave to your self-centeredness, and that's what Paul suggests here is how we were, and clearly there's an implication here that it's still something we're struggling with, that is a taste of hell, and that is where it leads ultimately. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can either be self-serving and you can justify it, or you can turn to God and let him rescue you. That's the, the stark contrast that Paul presents for us. I think maybe the hardest part of all is to hear in verse 3 that we are by nature deserving of wrath. It would be much easier for us to simply skip over that. We don't like to hear about God being a God of wrath. We so much prefer to think of God as a God of love who accepts everybody. But Paul is making the point, and it's an important one, that without wrath, there can be no justice. If you can't accept a God of wrath, a God who will not tolerate evil, you're never really going to understand a God of love, a God who was willing to come and to submit to the worst that evil could do, to put himself in our place. Really, unless you grasp God's anger at sin, you'll never 
be able to take hold of his grace. The amazing grace that comes from a God who was willing to take that sin on himself. Now that is truly costly love. And, and so if you only believe in a God of love, you might ask yourself, what does it cost your God to love you? And if the answer is not much really in the end, then it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the unique life-changing love of God in Jesus Christ. You can think of George Floyd and uh, the video that some of us, probably many of us have seen of that officer putting his knee on his neck for nine minutes until he killed him. There's been so much wrath directed at that cop and, and so there should be. But Paul is saying that we're all guilty like that. There are no exceptions. We can't simply blame other people. We have to see it in ourselves. We have to acknowledge it and admit that each one of us is deserving of wrath. And the solution isn't to work harder. It isn't to try harder. So what is the solution then? Well, verse 4 moves us from sin to salvation. And in some translations, not the one we read, but the ones that at this point I think are most effective, verse 4 begins simply with, but God. But God changes everything for you, for me, in the world. It's that moment when the sun shines through the dark clouds. And of course, if you know zombie movies, the zombies all scatter. And it's safe. There's a new horizon, a new day. But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. God took the initiative. He intervened when we couldn't help ourselves. He made us alive and raised us up with Christ. That's the resurrection power we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. It's by grace and by grace alone that you've been saved. And we need to hear that over and over and over again because we are forever trying to earn it, to prove ourselves refusing to trust God. Uh, some of you know I love John Calvin, and in his commentary on this passage, John Calvin, I think, sums it up beautifully. He says, if the whole of salvation is attributed to the grace of Christ, man has nothing left. We have no virtue of our own by which we can help ourselves. Now that is incredibly countercultural, right? We're supposed to make something of our lives. We're supposed to control our own destiny. Apart from Christ, everyone's trying to find something to make their life significant, to make them feel important. We're all doing that. Maybe it's success in your job or in school. It might be the goodness of your life, your kindness, your moral character. Maybe it's your friends, your image, your wealth, your family, your pleasures, some cause you're passionate about or a combination of these things. Whatever it is for you, it will never be enough. You will work at it, maybe achieve it, or, or maybe not, but either way, you're still not going to be satisfied with it because it's a performance. It's a lifetime of restless effort. It's striving and it's pretending. It's not freedom, that's for sure, and that's what Paul is inviting us to embrace here in Christ. Paul says that we're saved by grace and it comes as a gift from God and only comes that way.
We prefer to live by works. We want to be in control. Except we're not, and that leaves us frustrated and disappointed. But as you start to see, and the Holy Spirit is the only one who can enable this to sink in for us the way it needs to, as you start to see that everything you've got is a gift that ultimately comes from God, the Spirit will move you towards a contentment and a peace that maybe you never imagined could be possible. Chariots of Fire is one of my favorite films. It might be my favorite film. It's, it's definitely in the top 10. And since I've referenced uh, zombies and zombie movies, I, I, I better follow up with Chariots of Fire to put things right. There's a scene in Chariots of Fire that illustrates our refusal to accept God's grace. Eric Little and Harold Abrams are Great Britain's two top runners. They're these incredible athletes, and they're heading into the 1924 Olympic Games. Now, Abrams is a Jew at Cambridge University who has suffered racism his whole life, and he's used his athletic prowess, his, his strength, his ability, his speed, to prove himself to others. Before one race that is uh, shown in the film, he says, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that track, a corridor four feet wide, and I will have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? I find those words really powerful and and. In, in his own way, he's asking the question, who am I? It's an identity issue for him. He's saying, am, and he's asking, am I a winner or am I a loser? Will I justify my existence and raise myself up above other people? Or will I really be nothing special? Paul tells us, as all of us deal with that sense of doubt about our own worth, about whether we're lovable, about whether our lives matter, amount to anything. Paul says, Paul speaks the, the truth of the Holy Spirit into that. And he says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Like all of us, Harold Abrams wanted to be special. He wanted something to boast about. And so if you know the movie, you'll know that he works and works. He trains and trains. He gives his life to this competition. And he goes on to lose a race that was very important. And his world falls apart. He's angry. He's, he lashes out at the people around him, the people who love him. He's consumed by bitterness and regret. And, and we realize that he didn't really see his athletic ability as a gift. It was a tool. It was a means to an end. It was a way of trying to save himself from oblivion. But Paul says, and this is the message of the gospel, this is the, the core of Christian faith. Paul says we're saved by grace and it's a gift from God. When you try to control things in your life, life will seem unfair. And we see that also in this character, Harold Abrams. The other issue he faces in the movie Chariots of Fire is his pride. If you have something in your life 
that gives your life meaning other than God. I mean, I'm talking about ultimate value that you crave, that you can't do without, that you value that much. You're going to look down on other people who don't have that. And that is going to affect your relationships with people. You will despise people who don't have that whatever it is, that thing that means so much to you, that gift, that, that ability, that talent. If you are a hard worker, you will judge people who you think are lazy. If you're neat and organized, you will dismiss people who are disorganized, whose lives seem chaotic to you. If you're spontaneous and fun-loving, you will think less of people who seem uptight to you. And that kind of pride will make you miserable. But if you know that you're a sinner saved by grace, then you can accept people and not judge them. And as a result, you're able to love people with a freedom that perhaps previously was not possible. Above all, you can forgive others if you know that you're a sinner saved by grace. When you're on the high ground looking down on people, you'll never be moved to forgive them. You'll constantly be judging people. But if you know that you're saved by grace and it's only a gift, you'll be humbled, you will come down from that high place, and you will forgive others. You will experience the freedom and the new life that we have in Christ. And I was so moved last week by Helen DeHamel's testimony. If you didn't see the service, didn't hear the service last week, I encourage you to go back uh, to that video and listen to the story Helen tells of forgiveness and of healing in her life and of coming to understand that she is a sinner saved by grace and that it's only in Christ that she and all of us uh, can be who we were meant to be, who we were created to be by God. The whole passage that we've read uh, this morning leads to its last line. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it's no accident that the word work shows up twice here. We are God's handiwork and we're created, we're recreated really in Christ to do good work. This is the theme of sanctification. You know, we're saved once and for all, God does that in Christ instantly. But then sanctification is the journey we travel as literally sanctification means to be made holy as we are set apart to do what God intends for us to do, to grow more and more like Jesus and to fulfill his purposes. And we do that together always in the church is what this letter Ephesians tells us. Uh, When I think about work, um, I think about so many things. It's such a big part of our lives. But there's one uh, bit of wisdom about work that I came across years ago. The poet W.H. Auden says this about fulfilling work, about how work can be good. Because I think so many of us experience work, whether it's in a job or some other form of work, as, as a burden as something we just want to run away from and get, get away from. Auden says, in order for people to be happy in their work, there have to be three things, okay? First of all, they must be fit for it. In other words, they, they have to have some degree of, of ability to do it. 
Secondly, they must not do too much of it. So, so there have to be boundaries. You, you have your work and you pace yourself. You need to rest as well. You can't work all the time. And thirdly, and I think this is the most important part of what he says, the real wisdom of it. He says, you must have a sense of success in your work, not a doubtful sense, the kind of sense that needs the, the assurance of others to be confirmed, but a sure sense or rather knowledge that, that your work has been done well and fruitfully done, whatever the world may say or think about it. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that only Christ can give us that sure sense that our work is well done and fruitful. In Chariots of Fire, Eric Little competes with Harold Abrams, but Little sees things differently. Little decides that he's not going to run in the 100 meters race, even though that's his specialty and the gold medal was within his grasp. He's not going to compete in that event at the Paris Olympics because it's scheduled on a Sunday. And for him, running is his job. It's work. And he will not work on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, when God commands us to rest. And everyone thinks he's crazy. Even the Prince of Wales tried to convince him to change his mind. But he has that sure sense, that peace that comes from putting God first. And at one point, his sister says to him, uh, she's trying to convince him to give up running to become a missionary. Um, and, and she says, you know, this is more important, this, this missionary work in China that, that you could do. And eventually he does do that. His response to her is this. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Eric Little had the sure sense that he was being called by God to be a runner. And he had the freedom to give it up when he needed to. And, and that only comes from being saved by grace. He knew who he was in Christ. My hope and prayer for you and for all of us at Courtright is that we will come more and more to know who we are in Christ, to receive the gift of his salvation by grace alone, and to enter into the freedom that he has prepared for us to live out his purposes, which is where we find the joy and the contentment that we so crave. And, and next week, we're going to start to see that uh, come into view in this letter as the church uh, realizes our identity together in Christ. When, when, and, and that comes as Christ recreates us, as Christ brings us together across every boundary, across every division. And the issue next week is going to be racism, which is so clearly something that we are wrestling with in our culture, in our world, and, and need to in the church. So um, I look forward to that, and we will see you next week. God bless you.